Joining me this week to chat all things the Alexander Technique is Patrick Arda Walter, a professional singer who has worked with the likes of the Royal Opera. He's a trained Alexander Technique teacher himself and is an assistant at a training school for teachers of the Alexander Technique in Paris. Patrick is here to tell us where the technique originated from, how it can benefit singers, and he also shares with us an exercise that we can try out for ourselves and use in the studio with the singers we work with. Well, we best get into it then. Patrick Arder-Walter, welcome to the Singing Teachers Talk podcast. Or seeing as you're based in France, maybe I should welcome you by saying Bonjour Patrick, comment ça va? Très bien, merci. Yeah, with, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I would actually conduct the whole interview in French, but since doing my GCSEs, I can only remember some words. So unless you want to talk about rabbits and showers and my house with a garden, I think we better stick to English. <laughs> okay, we might not get very far in singing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one of my favourite French phrases was always un boisson froid, because it just felt so good in the mouth, which I think means a cold drink, right? Um. Yeah. It's not going to get me very far, to be fair, is it? Uh, but how is France uh, treating you? How is it there? And, and how did your career actually lead you to being based there? Well, it was partly career um, and partly just a choice. And I'm also one of the the bunch of, of people flee, who fled Brexit, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> uh, lucky to have an Irish granny. Um, the first time back in the 90s, I was on... Uh, a job with Andrew Parrott at the uh, Salle Playel. And I heard that the Coup Focal de France, which was a small vocal ensemble at the time, um, working for the Arts Ministry, were auditioning for a second bass. And so I just sorted that out, zipped over, sang a bit of Bach in between our rehearsal and our performance, and got myself a job in Paris. And I was 25 at the time, so it was a good thing for a young bass to get out to Europe and have a bit of experience while the voice warmed up a bit. And then I came back in 2018. And you're an assistant at a training school for teachers of the Alexander Technique in Paris. That's right. And you've also trained as a practitioner yourself, which I believe was in Oxford. That's right, with Stephen Cooper in Oxford. Mm. And uh, since then, you've continued to kind of implement this technique into your own private lessons and workshops. So for those who might not have heard of this before, can you explain what the Alexander Technique actually is and where it came from in the first place? Well, Mr. Alexander was something of a rogue and something of a genius. And he was born in Tasmania in 1869. He had fragile health, so he was educated at home and he grew to love Shakespeare and ended up with a good career performing monologues and touring around Australia and New Zealand as a one-man show. Um, so he was using his voice a lot. He knew all of Shakespeare inside out and also would do that, uh, what was that, is it the Lonely Mariner monologue and things he'd composed himself and lots of speeches from big plays. And at one point, his friends said to him that he was audibly gasping on stage and he found that at the end of a show, he was a bit hoarse. So he were talking around about uh, 1890 sort of time. And he was doing very well. He had lots of money. So he went to see the best doctors to try and have a cure. And none of them could help him. 
And therefore, he decided he had to figure out himself what it was he was doing when he was on stage that was causing him to lose his voice. And his observations, sitting there with three mirrors in front of him for weeks and months and years, making microscopic observations of his own movements, helped him to discover some fundamental principles about how we are organized to use our bodies, how the machine works, if you like, that goes for most mammals and which have been proven to be the case since then. It's about how we use the relationship between the head and the spinal column and uh, the effect that that has on all sorts of other parts of the body. So a lot of the work that he put in place was about undoing interference with that mechanism um, rather than adding anything as a layer on top. And he lived until 1955. He worked with government ministers, all the big names in London theatre and opera, and uh, taught in America as well, ran a school for disadvantaged children who would probably have ended up in institutions otherwise, and uh, had a very broad and interesting career, partly helping people to use their gifts better and remove the obstacles to their performing excellence or their sporting excellence, and also helping people who are ill. Interestingly, that was his experience at the end of the 19th century. But now that things like voice science and research has had even more time to develop, if that mm. was now, do you think that he may still have come up with the same technique? Oh, I believe so, because um, fundamentally the way that the um, human organism works remains the same. He might have chosen some different tools and he probably would have linked his work to more um, physiologists and neurologists. At the time, he he had written relationships with um, anthropologists and neurologists of his own generation. Um, and I think he would have used cameras rather than mirrors, partly because being in front of a mirror is something that tends to provoke a reaction in us, even if it's a very small one. None of us really enjoys looking at ourselves unless we're rather overconfident. And performing with a camera there and then watching back afterwards is much easier. So I suspect he would have used that. So what are the principles of the technique? Right. Well, the Alexander technique isn't an activity like Feldenkrais or yoga where you do it and then you get on with life. It's a re-education and it's a re-education that takes us back to the very uncluttered coordination and balance that we had as a natural inheritance when we were very small children. So if you look at a baby that's just beginning to learn to walk, you'll see that it doesn't pull its head back and down into its shoulders. It doesn't draw its knees into the body or hunch its shoulders together. It uh, has a very easy open use of the body. And we're trying to get back to that kind of freedom that we had before encountering furniture and watching how our parents did things and being criticized. The principles, um, I would say one of the important things in the Alexander Technique is that we recognize the force of habit. Habit is practically a life-saving mechanism and we tend not to realize how strongly it's rooted in us. Our organism learns habit in order to repeat a behavior that wasn't fatal last time, basically, in evolutionary terms. We repeat the behaviors we've survived because they're as a reaction to a threat, 
they are a safer bet than something completely new that we're trying out instead. So it's very difficult to let go of what feels familiar and to do something that feels unfamiliar. What feels unfamiliar will always feel wrong, whether it's better or worse. And that's why habits are so hard to break. The next thing I'd say is a principle is what we call psychophysical unity. But you could say that it's a unity of thought and muscle, muscular action. Missy Vineyard, who's a great American teacher and wrote a wonderful book that I'll tell you about later, um, refers to a series of experiments in um, MRI scanners where people were invited to imagine playing their game of tennis and finding that even though they didn't move a limb, their tennis improved as much as the people who actually went and practiced tennis. And even when they were invited to count silently in their head, so nothing emotional or provocative in that, just to count silently in their head, with each number, a tiny electrical signal went to a different group of muscles. So every thought plays out in our nerves and in the muscles that are innervated by those nerves. And every sensation that we have in the body feeds back into our mind as well. There's no separation of mind or body. I've already mentioned the way that we use the head in relation to the spine. That's what Alexander called the primary control. And then we have two tools, inhibition and direction, which are very close to one another. They're a bit of a yin and yang of the same thing. Inhibition is a refusal to consent to a habitual reaction when you're faced with something, with a stimulus, with a desire or a text message from your mum or a high note when you turn the page or a cake shop. It's not the Freudian kind of repress repressive inhibition. It's the choice not to consent to a habitual and maybe unconscious reaction. And then directions, or what Alexander called preventive directions at first, are thoughts that we send to the body, which are antidotes to the tendency to pull things into the center of the body. They're preventive as much as they are um, vivifying. They're designed to switch off the reactions we're not aware of, if you like. So what we are trying to get back to is a 24-7, freer, lighter, easier functioning in which we don't unintentionally interfere with doing the things that we want to do. It clears the terrain and it frees us up simply to do what we choose. And that's interesting because if if you don't have a reference of what it was like before, like learning to walk, we don't have much recollection of that journey or learning mm. part of our lives. How do we know we've reached it? We can't really because the, um, the sensations that we have you could call it proprioception or you could call it the, the feelings about your own position and levels of tension, the dimensions of your body and how you're moving. All that stuff is kind of skewed by our habits and our unconscious tightness and so on. Most people, if you bring them from whatever their strange habit is back to upright, feel anything but upright. Because upright for them, I see you drawing yourself up a bit. Yes. <laughs> but upright for us is only what feels familiar. And if you use a their mobile phone, with their permission, of course, to photograph them in profile before and after, most people are astonished by the gap 
between what they thought they were doing and what they can see in the photo. So all we can do is project the instructions to our body to stop messing around and then let the right thing do itself. The right thing did itself when we were very small. And the right thing is simply what our bodies are designed to do. So it's about clearing the decks and then trusting. Very difficult not to evaluate. It's very difficult not to verify as we go along, but it's necessary or we get into a pickle. So Mr. Alexander came Mm -hmm. to this idea through his own vocal troubles and the issues he was having on stage. So what drew you into this particular technique? Why did you want to explore it further and learn for yourself and apply it in your lessons and workshops? Well, it goes back quite a long way. And as with so many people in life, uh, what comes to you comes to you through others. Um, I knew nothing about the Alexander technique when I joined the vocal group where one of the sopranos was training to be a teacher. And we do say teacher rather than practitioner because we are communicating a learnable skill to our pupils and trying to make them independent from us. And she became perhaps my best friend, and she's a wonderful teacher uh, with very much experience and also a professional singer. And I saw what she was doing, and I knew that it made sense, and I resisted because I wanted to do something a bit less rigorous and a bit more wishy and intuitive with my hands. And then my mother was involved in a very severe car crash on a motorway. And she had five operations on her spine to try and put things back together. And in the last operation, they cut a nerve that went down her right arm, which meant that she, a professional pianist, found herself with a right arm that was basically dead and dangling. Very difficult. And uh, she went through the whole system of NHS physiotherapy, which left her much worse off because she had titanium rods in her neck and they were trying to get her to lift her arm. And she just ended up like this. And then not to have the titanium rods pushing in, she was like this. So in the end, she said, OK, I'll let you kids um, pay for me to have some Alexander lessons because the four of us wanted to club together and do that. And that was the results there were what really finally convinced me that it was time to stop missing about and go and train. So I'd had 15 years of lessons by then. And becoming a teacher is a bit of a different matter because you're going in deep every day in the academic year for three years at least, sometimes more, and really being taken apart, really discovering the bottom line of of who you are when you stop swimming in your habits and your reactions. And uh, so it was thanks to my best friend and also to the teacher who sorted my mum out that I ended up doing this. Would you mind sharing what actually ended up happening with your mother and and what she found after having an Alexander lesson? I think she looked better after, well, it wasn't a lesson, it was six months of intense lessons, but uh, she went from really being crippled to laughing again, to having a better balanced position in her body, I think, than she'd had even before the accident, to going back to being able to play the piano fully and beautifully, um, and to grace, I would say. She she found physical grace in her movement and a sort of a lightness that uh, was very noticeable. Mm. So real restorative, emotive results as well, as well as the physical. Well, yes, because as we say, there's no just physical in, in the way that the human being is put together. Anything that leaves out the 
relationship between our thoughts and our movements um, is incomplete. We have to, we, we are thinking, breathing, embodied people. You also mentioned the Feldenkrais method there. So what is the difference between Alexander Technique and something like Feldenkrais? For me, it's the fact that the Alexander Technique is a learned skill that applies not in a passive way, but in an actively thought way to how we approach every activity and also sleep. It's absolutely a transformation from the ground up and um, it will affect the way that we choose to breathe. It will affect the way that we understand that we have choice in all things, really. And the way that we're going to use ourselves, whether it's pushing a wheelbarrow or buttering toast or sitting at a computer or singing or doing the high jump or nursing a baby, all sorts of things. There's a, there are a lot of teachers who specialize in working with childbirth and pregnancy. And uh, that's an important strain of the work nowadays. I have huge respect for them. Mm. And some of your work is with people who are reaching end of life, isn't it? Yes. And it's a little bit different in a way because with the exception of people who are really interested, um, and that does happen sometimes, um, it's largely a matter of using an informed touch towards the end of life, which can help people to um, discover that they don't need to be holding on or tensing and which people can find reassuring. But I did have an interesting time working with a paralyzed lady who was dying of motor neurone disease. And uh, she was extremely bright and accustomed to being communicative and curious. And we worked on direction, even though her arms were paralyzed, in, uh, in being able to think in 3D and imagine expansiveness in her body. And there was me just sort of <laughs> not thinking to ask the question, explaining away how this all worked. And then I asked her what her career had been. And um, it took a long time for her to communicate with her apparatus. But she replied, uh, oh, I'm a re-educative neurophysiologist. I thought, right, here I am teaching granny to suck eggs. But she found it really satisfying to be able to send the thoughts of changing her physical dimensions and the space that she occupied after many, many months of not being able to move anything. Hmm. So the the mind certainly um, organizes our experience as much as our body does. Powerful stuff. It is. It is. We're very lucky. How does it relate directly to the singing experience then? So what sort of things might singers be coming to an Alexander Technique teacher for and what can they benefit from? Quite often people are coming because they don't understand why they're in difficulty and that's normal. I think it's very important never to judge someone for not being able to do something because they've already made the step of saying, I'm going to seek help with this problem. And I have huge respect for that. Very often people are using too much breath pressure because they don't understand or feel that they're doing that. They just feel that they're doing what's been familiar for, for years. Very often there is narrowing at the base of the throat or the back ribs are collapsing or the pelvis is pushed forward so that people are um, locking their knees back and maybe pulling the chest up a little bit. 
Sometimes the neck is too tight. Sometimes the tongue or jaw are getting involved in changing pitch or changing vowel. And all of these things are very difficult to spot if you're the person doing them and it feels familiar. So we're doing a lot of work starting with the head-neck relationship because once we learn to stop tightening the head-neck relationship, everything else begins to be a bit more accessible. You can try until you're blue in the face to stop someone um, tightening at the solar plexus, but if their neck is locked, they can't. They have to let go of the head-neck relationship first, and then other things become possible. Um, very often, it's how people stand that, through a chain reaction, ends up putting pressure under the glottis. And people have come to me post-surgery quite often. Any Alexander teacher will look at a new student when they come through the door, will, of course, listen to what the student describes, but will also look at how they're using themselves, because that will give us a lot of important clues. So. Uh, one cabaret singer that I worked with arrived on a cold day in ballet pumps and short leggings, and her lower legs and ankles were blue with cold, and her feet were collapsed. And so, of course, there was no there was no alignment or grounding. All the pressure was up here, and she probably thought I was a bit mad when I started working on her feet with her while we vocalised. But she went back from five notes to two octaves in no time at all because all the work had absented itself from her legs and, and crept up here and her larynx couldn't pivot anymore. So if a singer comes to you complaining of a particular vocal difficulty, how would you start up that Alexander Technique approach? We will always, if we're teaching Alexander rather than singing with Alexander, we will always start off by bringing some awareness to the way that the head-neck relationship is being used. And quite often when people let go of the tension in the neck, they'll start to realize that they're holding onto shoulders or arms or hips, and the letting go will follow on through. Um, and then the back can start to do its job and support the rest of the organism, the limbs and the head. What I try to do, certainly with, with singers who are accustomed to working on themselves, is to take the actual sound out of the equation um, for the first steps and sometimes as long as I dare, because we have to get somebody back to being able to exhale and to allow an inhalation without tensing in the neck and throat. And I'd like to share with your uh, followers a little game that we can try just for ourselves at home. And it's known in Alexander terms as the whispered R. I'm a little bit sorry that it's called that because for me, it's not whispered, it's silent. But there we go. <laughs> um, to start this little game, I'd suggest you try and stand, or if you are sitting, to sit uh, long and as free as possible, balanced over your sit bones, and to breathe quite naturally and to find a happy thought. I think it's always useful as singers to have a, a little library of memories and uh, sensations and experiences that we can um, plug into when we need to summons up something in ourselves. And so that happy thought might be, well, for, for me, it was uh, my first dog discovering a glass full of toothbrushes, but it might be uh, somebody you met, something you ate, just a wonderful experience. 
cultivate that inner smile because we're going to discover in the whispered hour how important it is not to pull the face down if we want the spaces behind to be open. And particularly we Southerners in England and a little bit the Midlanders too tend to pull down a bit in the face. So we'll cultivate a little twinkle of a smile under the eyes, behind the eyes, around the eyes, and try and keep that alive. So looking at something in the room and sending some positive vibes to it with the eyes, still breathing normally. Then with very relaxed cheeks and jaw, just touch the tip of your tongue onto the back of your lower front teeth and be aware of the feeling of the air coming out your nose, flowing back in your nose without ever collapsing as you force the air out. Keep yourself long as you send the air out, let the air flow back in by itself. And then at a certain moment, without topping up your breath or doing anything extra, let that smiling R flow out on an out breath by just gently opening the mouth and letting the jaw fall a little bit back and down. Let the silent R follow your eyes, follow where you're looking. And at the end of it, Gently bring your lips back together and wait for the in-breath to happen. And then breathe normally for a little while and maybe repeat that, sending out that and discovering that there's an awful lot of work that doesn't need to happen in the ribcage and the solar plexus, that doesn't need to happen in the throat or the neck. And it sets us up very well for starting to use words and pitches. And similarly, if you've got a difficult passage, enunciate it silently on the out-breath, maybe the second half the phrase first and then the whole phrase before you start to bring in the voice and teach the body that there isn't a breath problem there. Teach the body that we can go through these words and these lines and these shapes without adding on our fear reactions and our tightenings and that that's not something we need to do when we sing. Now the Alexander technique is not singing technique but it really clears the decks to allow singing technique to do its job. And how would you integrate that when we turn the voice on, when we're using voiced sounds? I would start with, well, it depends on the, the vocal history of the person, but I would start with some very gentle, easy vocal leases in the middle of the voice, never pushing up to the top or digging down to the bottom, discovering vocalizing without using more than just letting the airflow bring together the edges of the vocal cords and then working from the middle outwards on hummings and very small contained vowel shapes and gradually letting things open up and connect into the whole of the body again. But um, whispered R's and silent vocalizing and then humming quite a lot and maybe discovering that we can move across a, a pitch change or an interval on a gentle contained hum or a simple vowel without using the, the throat muscles to change pitch so that we're clearing away the extra work and making space inside for what's necessary to happen. So there's one other thing I would like to say for a singer when it comes to the silent R or the whispered R. Use it not in great big long blocks, but when you feel that tension is beginning to build up around something you're working on, whether it's a piece of music or even a situation, stop and do a whispered R and then carry on. Just use it as a reset. It's a really good, quick reset. And if you're discreet, you can do it in the tube or in the wings. Um, you can almost do it on stage and nobody will even notice because all you're doing is looking interested and alive in your eyes and letting your lips part just gently for a moment or two. Nobody's going to notice. So use it. It's a great one. Mm. And as the reset, what is it actually resetting? 
the stored up, built up tension and the overstocking of breath that you can get under the front of your ribcage. Great. Yeah, yeah, great. And you work with classical singers as well as delving into the contemporary realm as well. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular complaint that you see most often? Is it the breath or is there something else that you, you're tending to treat? I think that almost everybody I see who comes for uh, lessons tends to stand in a way that interferes with the freedom of the breathing mechanism and probably the the freedom of everything else. I'd say 80% of people tend to stand with their hips rolled a bit forwards, their pelvis pushed a little bit forwards, and uh, their knees pushed a little bit back. And then you get in the other 20%, either the opposite of that or somebody very much on one leg or the other. And this really interferes with the freedom of the diaphragm to rise as a kind of a a parachute going upwards, if you like, on the inside of the ribcage and the freedom of the ribcage to lengthen and taper at the base during the outbreath, and of the connection between the front lower abdominal muscles and the web of muscles that it, it uh, anchors. So it's really important to get people back in balance. And in Alexander terms for them, it'll often feel like imbalance because as bipeds, we're made to be a bit out of balance all the time. We can change direction much quicker than any of our predators. And we use fewer calories per kilometer than anybody, anything with four legs when it comes to covering ground. So bipedalism is brilliant, but it does mean that we're always a little bit in movement. We need to be able to be. That movement has to be available. And we're not designed to be planted like the Eiffel Tower, which would mean that it was very difficult for us to change position. That fluidity that freedom, that potential for movement wants to be going from the soles of the feet all the way up through the body the whole time. And people will often think, you know, when they're in, Ale in an Alexander lesson, whoa, I don't know how to stand anymore. But actually, that's great. It means we're sort of swimming upwards the whole time. Yeah, because I can imagine that's a little bit off-putting. If you feel like you've gone from normal to what the heck am I doing? I'm afraid that that is one of the things you let yourself in for when you're learning the Alexander technique and probably when you're learning singing generally, yeah. that you have to risk the unknown and put yourself in situations which have a feeling of unfamiliarity, even if something in you recognises that it's easier or more efficient. Yeah. And those singers that you're working with, is that just regardless of, of genre or do you notice something happening more to the classical singers compared to the contemporary or vice versa? It's a different, the, the main difference for me in the sound people are making is happening from the, the, the oropharynx upwards. It's the amount of space that we make behind, which creates the ring and the timbre. Um, and I suppose, yeah, I mean, some kind of rock singers do less of the forming the vowels in the in the pharynx than we do in classical music. But when it comes down to breathing and not pushing or forcing breath, but giving a stable, well-rooted, uh, available and extended out breath, that goes for everybody, really. Um, we just have to allow the space to not become over expanded and developed up here when you're talking about rock and pop people because uh, it'll start to sound too operatic right and it needs to stay closer to speech shapes which i hate to say because 
really uh, classical singing is never about speech shapes. It's always about uh, modified vowels, and modified volumes inside in order to make this extraordinary sound. But for rock and uh, pop singers, yeah, it's a, it's a slightly different shape. But they all come with their funny postures and they're grabbing throats and they're grabbing ribs. Yeah, yeah. And how much of the work is hands-on? Do you have to get physical with the singers? We use our hands a lot. Um, we use our hands because we've been working on ourselves for so many years that the hands can communicate an experience, a physical experience, that the pupil can't re reproduce on their own. You can't ask somebody's brain to do something that appears impossible to them and that they've never experienced before. So I'll say to you, for example, would you like to let your neck release in such a way that your head could float up with a little bit? But then my hands will say to your nervous system, here, this is available. You could do this if you choose. And my hands can communicate that in a way that your brain wouldn't otherwise be able to reproduce. Interesting. Yes. I can kind of relate this to, we, we've spoken to uh, my fascial release practitioners and mm -hmm. people who deal with manual therapy and and how that gentle touch can be quite powerful in asking the body to release or do something different and it sounds quite quite similar or on the same sort of we're really good friends with people who do myofascial release for example or rolfing or osteopathy because if you only used the alexander technique to reverse the effects of years and years of misusing the body it would take ages the I, I went to a an osteopath while i was being trained as a teacher and i've had uh, stages of sessions of rolfing and myofascial release we're all working in the same direction but what the alexander technique teaches your body to do which the others do not is not to reproduce the problem is not to do the thing that created the problem in the first place or to stop doing it. Once you've stopped creating the problem, by all means, go and ask another practitioner to help you reverse those symptoms quicker. It's a great tool, it's a, it's a wonderful feeling and I'm all for it. So in terms of how long something takes, I mean, when you gave us the story earlier, you shared really, really kindly of your mother. It took quite a few months or sessions mm -hmm. with an Alexander Technique teacher. It might be asking you how long a piece of string is, but in, in general, how long does an applied technique take to see improvements or changes? Really, um, people will not see a, a straight line. People will have breakthroughs and moments of wow. And quite often in the first lesson, people will think, gosh, the danger is that people will get to lesson three and think, oh, I've understood this. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, the, uh, the habits that we have and the, the um, inbuilt assumptions that we have in our feelings uh, take a lot longer to unlearn. But we did have a study on mechanical back pain, chronic mechanical back pain that was published in 2008, in which they did side-by-side uh, -side comparisons of physiotherapy and yoga lessons, medical treatment and Alexander technique, six sessions, 12 sessions, 24 sessions, with and without prescribed exercise. And therefore, people say to us, oh, well, you know, we ought to be able to make a big difference to back pain in six sessions. I think that's a bit arbitrary, but that's what the NHS pays for. <laughs> so, yes, we have to say we can do it. 
Um, I think that the the longer we go on, the richer and deeper and more complete the journey becomes. And we don't try to fix one thing in a certain amount of time. But I would say if you imagine 20 lessons, for example, to make a substantial change in the way you use yourself, that's not a bad that's not a bad kind of rule of thumb. You will see positive changes in six and 12 and 18 lessons. Um, but I, I think really to learn to look after yourself in a lasting way that doesn't need you constantly coming back to your teacher to help, that would be a, a sensible amount. Because what we're teaching you to do is work on yourself. Yeah. And if a vocal coach wanted to find out how to become an Alexander Technique teacher themselves, where could they look? And and I think you mentioned earlier that the, the training could be, what, three-ish, three-ish years? Is that yes. right? The, the training generally is spread over three years and uh, 1,600 hours of contact time. There are different kind of formulations according to the different schools and how they divide up the week and the terms and so on. If you are in the UK, you can go to the STAT website. That's a Society of Teachers of the Alexander Technique. And they have lots of pages about different schools where you can learn to be a teacher. I think it's important to have lessons first to know what it's about. And before having lessons, you might even choose to go to an introductory course. In America, you can go to the AMSTAT uh, website and in Australia to the OSTAT. There's a training school in Mexico City, I think. There are training schools in many countries around the world. Um, I'm a member of APTA, LAPTA en France, uh, which shows you where you can train in France, you can train in Italy, Germany, the Netherlands, Ireland. And um, it's three years fundamentally to get your training and get things underway. But uh, yeah, start off with some lessons and uh, see if you like it. It's uh, quite a challenging undertaking. It's quite hard work having your habits and assumptions gently dismantled and taken away and having to discover who you are in a much more authentic kind of way without these accretions. But it changed my life completely. I'm very happy I did it. What resources could we also check out? You mentioned a book earlier. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Missy Vineyard, How You Stand, How You Move, How You Live. Um, there are not many authors called Missy Vineyard, so it's quite easy to find on uh, in a bookstore or online. And I think that's a very good first way in. If you wanted to read one of Alexander's books, I think the least inaccessible, if I can put it that way, is The Use of the Self. That's available in, as a fairly inexpensive paperback. The other ones are chunky, big, and they are written in an era when people were not accustomed to being entertained all the time and had a capacity to concentrate and read a difficult book uh, far more than we do now. So I wouldn't throw yourself in the deep end unless you're a, a little bit of a masochist, really, with the other <laughs> books of Alexander. Um, there are some lovely books by Walter Carrington, anything by him, and uh, also by Marjorie Barlow, who was Alexander's niece, and I feel has a way of explaining the principles and the concepts and how we teach that's very light-handed and uh, very easy to understand in modern English. 
unlike her uncle, who was so precise that it, it could be sometimes heavy going. But start off with Missy Vineyard if you're an English reader, because that's a good one. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been really great to really understand the Alexander Technique that a little bit deeper. Where can our listeners find out more about your work and get in touch with you? Well, if you look on the APTA website or the STAT website, you have my contact details there. If you Google my name, you'll get all sorts of iniquities, but uh, not necessarily useful ones. Um, if you would like uh, lessons or coaching or for me to come and do a workshop, get my contact details from the APTA website or from the STAT website, stat.org.uk. I think it's Alexander Technique now, UK. And um, give me a, drop me an email or give me a bell and it'll be a great pleasure. enjoying the singing teachers talk podcast and who are we kidding of course you are share the love by giving us a ahem, five star rating and leaving a comment just head to the singing teachers talk main page on the apple podcast app and scroll to the bottom to click write a review